Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Alexander Orwin to discuss his book, Redefining the Muslim Community, Ethnicity, Religion, and Politics in the Thought of Al-Farabi, published in 2017 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Professor Orwin is an assistant professor of political science at Louisiana State University. Our topic of conversation today, Redefining the Muslim Community, Ethnicity, Religion, and Politics in the Thought of Al-Farabi, is a synthetic study across Al-Farabi's disparate oeuvre, weaving a thematic treatment of notions such as nationhood, language, religion, and politics within an analysis of each of his works in turn. The book shows how Al-Farabi strove to recast the Islamic Ummah as a community in both religious and cultural sense. It's a work that not only excavates an understudied philosopher, tackling his genealogy as well as his influence, but delivers a contemporary message as well. Professor Orwin renews the discourse around nationhood and nationalism, inclusion and diversity, tensions that still persist in Islam today, and the world moreover. I'm happy to have him with us today. Good morning, Professor Orwin. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by discussing some of your own background before we get to the book. Um, How did you come to write it? Uh, And can you tell us a little bit about its genesis and how the project unfolded? I got the idea to write it actually in... uh... Jerusalem, not surprisingly, as I acknowledge in the preface. Um, Jerusalem is obviously a place where there are many different clashing ummas uh, with many different claims. Uh, moreover, there's, it's quite simply impossible to uh, resolve all of those claims. Uh, so that got me interested in the issue in both a religious and cultural sense. Um, for example, think of a visit to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and how impossible it is to uh, bring the Ethiopians and Syrians and Greeks and Catholics together. And then you add Muslims and Jews and the list continues. Um, so at the same time, I got interested in Al-Farabi and I made a fairly simple uh, textual output observation that whereas Plato and Aristotle, who are ostensibly Al-Farabi's greatest political and philosophical inspiration, mention uh, mostly just the city, Al-Farabi almost always says city and nation, or in Arabic, Ummah. So then I became curious about what that might mean. 
Uh, I already knew, of course, that Ummah meant something in the Islamic context, namely a nation and also the Islamic religious community. Um, I'd read some of the Quran, for example, and was familiar with the religious use of that term. So that was the beginning of the book. Who was Al-Farabi, and why do you think he's an important figure? Where does he sit in the history of Islamic political thought? Well, uh, the most obvious sign of his importance is that all of the greatest philosophers after him say a lot about him. Uh, Medieval philosophers did not uh, drop names frequently. They only gave credit to their contemporaries when they really thought they had to. And virtually everyone gave credit to Al-Farabi. That includes, of course, Maimonides, who has a famous letter about him to Ibn Tibbon, in which he was praised as the greatest philosopher of the Middle Ages, essentially. Uh, He also mentions him in the guide several times. Similarly, Avicenna, Averroes, Ibn Tufayl, Ibn Baj, I believe, all give him his due. Um, So they mention him by name, and almost always with praise and interest. Uh, He wasn't that well known after the Middle Ages, perhaps because of a historical accident. His work wasn't translated. Uh, A little bit of it came into Latin, but not nearly as much as work by Averroes or Avicenna. Um, So it just wasn't known in Europe really until the late 19th and early 20th century. when his works were gradually recovered and translated. Um, But then once he was studied again, many people came to the opinion that he was the founder of philosophy and in particular political philosophy in medieval Islam. And I think that view is gaining increasing currency. Uh, I know there are people who continue to contest it. I think, though, that if you trace not just the references, but also all of the major themes, you know, the treatment of religion, the treatment of empire, um, the analysis of law, um, the way that Plato and Aristotle are both used and um, adapted in medieval Islamic thought, all roads do lead back to Al-Farabi. That's not to dismi- dis- diminish the importance of the innovations of his successors, which are well worth studying in their own right. But uh, Al-Farabi is, I think, the founder of the tradition um, with all the weight that that title uh, imposes. Could you tell us a little bit about him and uh, the context in which he lived? Well, he probably had one of the most fascinating lives of anyone. Uh, It's a pity, therefore, that we know so little about it, and probably the details of his life will never be traced. Uh, The sources all date from at least 200 years after his death, sometimes more, and they contain various hagiographical elements. So there's very little we know for certain. I think it's safe to infer that he was born in Central Asia, possibly in a village called Farab in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan therefore claims him as his own. They've named universities after him. They've even put him on their currency. So he was born in a very remote region, um, 
really what the Greeks would have called a Scythia. So it's interesting that a Scythian should somehow rediscover Greek philosophy. How? Well, at some point in his life, he left uh, his native region and made it to Baghdad. He might have studied in Byzantium. It's all speculation, but he does acknowledge at one point the importance of learning things from Byzantium. Um, Never mentions any Christian teachers. For obvious reasons, that might have been imprudent. Uh, Clearly, though, traveled a lot, learned a lot of languages, and somehow settled in Baghdad. And at the very least, there he came into contact with uh, the Greek schools of philosophy and with various Nestorian Christians. You could say refugees in Baghdad who came from the other direction, who had fled the Byzantine persecutions of, I think, the 7th and 8th centuries against certain heretical sects. So presumably, a migrant from the Far East came into contact with migrants from the Far West in this cosmopolitan city, and therefore somehow managed to recover and really understand far more than any of his predecessors had uh, ancient Greek thought. And as I mentioned in an earlier statement, adapted to the Islamic world. Uh, and context. He then lived perhaps 40 years in Baghdad. Um, Our best guess is maybe 910 to 950. He was born in 870. Um, And there he had many students and he did establish an enduring uh, reputation and following. Before we come on to what you call the question of Uma um, and the rest of the book, your first chapter um, explores some of the influences on Farabi, particularly the Greek inheritance, um, Plato's Republic, and Aristotle's politics. What was Al-Farabi's relationship with his predecessors, with Plato and with Aristotle? Well, it's controversial. Again, we don't have that many scholarly sources. Um, there was an attempt made... Uh, well, for example, by Richard Walzer, an extremely erudite scholar, to try to trace Farabi's sources, how he, what he read of Plato and Aristotle, also what he read of Hellenistic authors. The problem is that since this was pre-printing, we just don't have an adequate record. A lot of it is guesswork. Um, we don't even have that many... Arabic translations, especially of Plato. So we don't know if a full translation of the Republic existed. We also don't know if Al-Farabi knew Greek. At the very least, he never admitted it, and he deliberately or unintentionally, that's the crucial question, makes some mistakes in his interpretation of Greek words. I inclined to think that that was deliberate. He gets other words right. Again, he might have wanted to cover his tracks if he'd studied so much with the Byzantine, with the Byzantine Christians. Um, he possibly could have learned Greek in Baghdad itself from the uh, Nestorians and the Byzantine migrants. In this respect, it's very very different from, say, his successors like Averroes and Avicenna, who I don't think would have had any occasion to learn Greek. Uh, So, since we don't know how many languages he knew or what books he had access to, I tend to rely rely most on whom he mentions. 
And he always mentions Plato and Aristotle, right? Even in the title of his most important, perhaps philosophical work, it's called The Philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. And he mentions very rarely the Hellenistic sources. Uh, so to the extent that we can follow Farab, what Farabi himself states explicitly, you know, his greatest inspiration was Plato and Aristotle. Um, so that's the track that I follow. Uh, I don't deny that there might be other Hellenistic influences that are hard to trace and that he doesn't acknowledge. But that seems to me to be much more conjectural than the fact that he praised Plato and Aristotle and gave so much credit to them. And if he had had access to very imperfect versions of Plato and Aristotle, well, he still learned a lot from them. Also, if they were really just summaries, I think Al-Farabi... You know, as such a thoughtful man and careful reader would have seen that these weren't really adequate and would have proceeded with due caution. So that's another reason why I think that he had access to these works. Um, it's a conjecture, but a good one, I think. Um, it's not such a good conjecture that I think that, for example, we should you know, compare Plato to Farabi word by word. I mean, that is hard to do because we... <laughs> We can't be sure that he had a reliable uh, edition of the Republic, uh, let alone of Aristotle's politics, whose presence in the medieval world, Islamic world, is even more controversial, and which I do doubt. So, uh, hedging as much as I can, I think that he had access to Plato and Aristotle's thought somehow. Did he have access to the texts? as we have, I'm not as sure of that. And that, I think, determines how I proceed in the first two sections. I assume that he had access to something resembling our republic, but not necessarily word for word, and I'm even more skeptical with regard to the politics, but I do think you can profitably compare his treatment of the themes with, his, with Aristotle's treatment, um, and similarly with Plato. His second inheritance was obviously um, the Islamic tradition, uh, particularly the tradition of the Quran. Um, I was wondering if you can reflect a little on how he was able to manage these sort of competing inheritances, the Greek philosophic inheritance uh, and the Islamic religious one. Well, with the Islamic religious one, he's so cautious, it's a notorious fact that he never quotes the Quran. Also very different from his uh, successors who quote the Quran very liberally often. Um, so he never quotes the Hadith. It's fair to say he never, at least in the works that we have and we don't have every single work, I think he never quotes the Islamic tradition. Maybe there's one exception as some kind of logical example in one of the books on rhetoric, but certainly in the political works, he never ever mentions the Quran or the Hadith. Um, and the earliest figure he mentions in the Islamic tradition is Muawiyah, uh, the first Umayyad ruler, who is, of course, a dubious figure for many Muslims. He was the first caliph who wasn't considered rightly guided by all. Um, so he deliberately chose not to cite the Quran directly. I, 
I argue that he cites it indirectly just by his terminology. Terms like Uma are Quranic terms and would have been immediately recognized as such by all of his readers, Muslim and I suspect Christian as well. Um, and there are other terms like Millah, religion, and of course Sharia, uh, which obviously hearken to Islam. Uh, so what he learned or took from Islam can only be inferred by some of his vocabulary. And, of course, there's no word in Greek for religion or for revealed law or revelation, and certainly not in ancient Greek, I should say. In terms, though, of who he learned most from, uh, I think you have to say Plato and Aristotle. But he also knew that you couldn't explain Aristotle and Plato to Muslims without making the case for them in an Islamic religious context, and therefore in understanding that context, also understanding the really permanent change that the Quran and monotheism had wrought on all aspects of civilization, be it art, literature, law, politics, religion, and ultimately philosophy, you know, and how it needs to be interpreted. Um, So I don't think his attempt to revive Plato and Aristotle would have been successful unless how he knew how to do it for Muslims. So he can use the thoughts of Plato and Aristotle, but he has to adapt and in some cases extend them uh, in order to explain Islamic phenomena. Um, such as empire, um, the Muslim Ummah, you know, the importance of universal revealed law, and so on. And he had to explain that those things did not antiquate Plato and Aristotle, but they could actually be adequately interpreted you know, by thoughts that can be traced uh, more or less to Plato and Aristotle so that their account of law could explain something like Islam um, or that their account of politics wasn't rendered completely obsolete by the universalist uh, Muslim claims. Um, So I'd like to come back to that later on uh, in our time together, Um, his sense of context and and the way in which you sort of understand his... um, philosophy of language, I guess you would say, or his idea of language. Um, But before we do so, uh, the central concept in your book is Al-Farabi's understanding of the term Ummah, or nation. Um, And could you reflect on why this is a keyword for Al-Farabi, how it unlocks his works in general, and and his particularly his, his political thought? Yes, well, it's one of the best examples, I think, of the tendency that I just described. It would have made no sense for him to simply talk about the polis, you know, the Greek city, which Plato and especially Aristotle gave such impressive accounts of. Uh, That political uh, form barely existed in his time, uh, so it would have made his thoughts seem barren and antiquated, you know, imitating something that no longer seemed to matter. And it also would have failed to explain these phenomena. The Greeks knew empire. Aristotle, I guess, was the tutor of Alexander. They knew about the Persian Empire. Uh, they didn't know, though, of empires that made universal 
claims based on religion, at least not in the same sense, not with the same force that Islam does. They also didn't know of nations like the Islamic Ummah that were intricately or inextricably bound with religion. Um, so Al-Farabi had to explain uh, those phenomena. And the first thing that you observe, reading even the most, well, the most commonly read books like Al-Farabi, such as The Political Regime and The Book of Religion, is that wherever Aristotle just talked about cities, and he makes rare selective mentions of Uma or ethnos or genos, there's not even one word in Greek, so as does Plato, Al-Farabi adds the Uma. He keeps saying city and Uma, as if the apparently Platonic or Aristotelian thoughts that he expresses apply equally to the Uma. Um, so what is the Uma? Um, and in many of the works which just talk about cities and Umas repeatedly, he gives no thematic definition of it. Uh, but in one brief passage in the political regime and in a longer passage in the book of letters, which unfortunately has not been, no, it in fact has just been translated by Charles Butterworth. So, no, it's about to be translated by Charles Butterworth, you know, as you know, as an excellent translator. So I look forward to that coming out. And when that comes out, people will have access to the uh, book of letters. And there... There he says that the Uma is based on the development of language and literature, whereas in the political regime, he says that it's based on climate and food. And I think it's a combination of those factors. Language and literature in the long run is somewhat more important. It affects the soul, whereas climate and food just affect the body. And of course, Farabi is no, no racist in any crude sense. He doesn't think those things are that important. Um, except to some extent they pave the way for differences in languages. Some languages talk about camels and others don't. Um, also, pronunciation is affected by the f form of the body. But in the end, it's with the language that the nation becomes, the Uma becomes dynamic. Um, and that's how human diversity and heterogeneity in its highest sense emerges. Uh, different nations are established in different parts of the earth with a, a language and then finally a literature which determines their cultural horizon. And again, in the Islamic world, those communities, without even talking yet about the Islamic Ummah, those communities were much more important than you know, whatever small cities, vestiges of antiquity um, remained. So the Arabs, the Persians, the Berbers, the Turks, and so on. So in your book, you deal with a number of different meanings of the word Ummah, um, nation in general, or Islamic community, or something that's tied together by language or culture. Um, how did you understand these sort of different terms for, for Ummah? Um, and how does this sort of reflected in Al-Farabi's general philosophic oeuvre? The normal translation of nation is probably the best that we have. Its limitations, though, become clear when you consider, for example, that right, ancient India or ancient Egypt 
are clearly ummas for Al-Farabi, and we never call them nations. We call them uh, civilizations. I don't think we'd really even call the ancient Arabs a nation. The modern Arabs is a different question. A nation is tinged now with this political meaning that, you know, influenced by nationalism. Uh, so that's why I suggest civilization as arguably a better translation. Um, initially in Arabic, it seems to mean a group, uh, not so clearly defined. It became defined over time. You, certainly by the time of the Quran, it all meant one of these ethnic nations. Um, I think, though, tribe is insufficient because aside from its somewhat primitive connotations, it doesn't bring out the full importance of language and literature the way civilization does. Uh, the only thing that needs to be warned about with regard to civilization, he's talking about a particular civilization, not universal civilization as opposed to barbarism. He doesn't use that in the sense that Ibn Khaldun uses it, let alone in the sense that we use it. Um, so by civilization, he means a particular civilization. I think that's the best definition that we have for Ummah. It's a little awkward in translation. Then, I mean, the religious meaning is, of course, the most common meaning today in contemporary Arabic. When people invoke the Ummah, it usually means the entire Muslim Ummah. Um, so there you could translate it as religious community. Uh, but that, whereas nation is too sort of modernizing or nationalizing, translating it as community or religious community is too Islamizing. Uh, so I think all things considered, right, nation and civilization are the best um, translations. Then think about how those translations could be applied to the Islamic community. Could it be understood also as a nation and a civilization? So what then was Al-Farabi's view of Islamic religion and civilization? So uh, uh, typically, right, he doesn't quote the, the Quran or cite anything that's obviously and explicitly an Islamic view of the Ummah, except, I mean, a couple of things. He firstly uh, says that the jurists uh, established the religion in the Ummah. He doesn't say that the founder of the religion, this is in the Book of Religion, established it in the Ummah. So the founder of the religion could have meant it for any number of communities, be it a tribe or a city, or many, or or an umma, or many ummas. Uh, the jurists, he says, established it in an umma. So why is that? Um, possibly because the jurists needed language. They also needed stories through which the faith could be interpreted. Interpreted. They. You know, invent, well, they established the Hadith and the Seerah. They had to go beyond the Quran, which often gives fairly cursory accounts of many things that Muslims would like to know, especially about Muhammad's own life. So the jurists create, you could say, a whole civilization based on language and literature. Um, its language is literary Arabic, which was eventually codified and has remained remarkably... Uh, stable as languages go over the centuries. Um, 
And the stories that they told were stories about the founding of Islam. Uh, so if you understand the establishment and practice of Islam in that way, Islam can be understood as a uh, civilization. And I believe that that uh, understanding is still entirely intelligible. In fact, many, uh, well, people in Near Eastern languages and civilizations, I think, would say that Islam is a, a civilization in a positive sense. I mean, it's produced great literature and art and and politic, political success, and so on. Um, the fact that it is religious as well does make it different from previous civilizations. Farabi acknowledges that at the end of the Book of Religion when he speaks about a virtuous Ummah, which is something he very rarely does. Um, and I take that to be an allusion to Islam, the, vir the term virtuous Ummah doesn't occur in the Quran, but it's basically using sort of Platonic or Aristotelian language to describe Quranic terms like this is the rightly guided or central Ummah, or this is the best Ummah produced for mankind, um, very famous Quranic verses. Um, and obviously, this vir this virtuous Ummah is you can already see in the virtuous in the Book of Religion, characterized by things like revelation, Sharia, and also universal political claims, which the previous Ummahs did not really make. To make a sort of an anachronistic shift, um, one of the things that you deal with in your book. Um, is you uncover a sort of genealogy of the nation that precedes the discourse around nationalism. Um, so could you briefly compare um, the vision that you're describing of uh, Al-Farabi's view of, of the nation or nationhood um, and the discourse around nationalism? Well, I think it's, again, worth comparing what we think of civilizations to nations. So the modern Egyptian nation is not ancient Egypt. On the other hand, it's not completely detached from ancient Egypt. It lives amongst its fabulous ruins. Um, its Arabic has, in fact, been influenced in some cases by um, ancient Egyptian, um, as have some of its customs. So, you know, there are two different things. Modern nationalism emerged in the maybe 18th, early 19th century. It was an attempt to transform the ethnic nation or civilization into a political nation. Um, it built on various types of pre-existing communities. I suppose that uh, there might be exceptions, but I think in the vast majority of cases, uh, the modern nation built on some kind of, built itself on some kind of pre-existing community whose identity it strengthened. Um, so I think they're very uh, prominent cases, the French and the English, they, their languages existed before they were modern nations, the Germans, the Italians. Um, then I guess there are cases like the Hungarians where the pre-existing identity was was less, was more recent anyway. Um, 
I do think that the most influential nations you know, tended to build on pre-existing civilizations. Um, this is not meant as a critique of you know, nations like Hungary. You work, nationalism worked with what it had. But I think that what it had before, whatever heritage it had, was very important. Nationalism had to try to take that heritage and make it political. Um, and that meant, I think, reinterpreting the stories of the Uma, the stories of, the, of all kinds of Umas, be they ethnic or religious, weren't always designed to create political unity. We know that Greece, despite Homer, was, all, was very fractious because um, the Arabs were, were very disunited until modern times. Virtually every pre-nationalist nation was not characterized by political unity. So nationalism had to transform the pre-existing ethnic nation or community along lines that were novel, but Farabi would perhaps have understood since he emphasizes how important storytelling and language is. And nationalism definitely built on that. It needed to create a new version of history. You know, as writers on the modern nation, such as Ernest Renan and Rousseau, acknowledge a new version of history which uh, presented the nation as more politically cohesive and united than it actually was. Um, so I do argue that nationalism is perhaps a new version of an old phenomenon, one that has great political imp implications. It creates a new Uma that, uh, in Farabian language, obviously very anachronistic, a new nation that coexists with the ancient form. So obviously it doesn't eradicate um, the ethnic, the pre-existing ethnic or religious Uma. So sticking with Egypt as an example, um, it's both Egyptian, uh, Arab, and Muslim, and that leads to all kinds of political challenges. Um, if I can mention its, its neighbor, you know, Israel is obviously both uh, Jewish and Zionist, and so that creates complications as well. And of course, it's also then, of course, it's Israelis came from various other ethnic nations like Germans and Sephardic. So what I argue in the end of the book, essentially, is that we all have a very complicated identity that we have to wrestle with, you know, based on these different kinds of uh, umas that were created and that could be explained, you know, by Al-Farabi's analysis. Um, Al-Farabi, of course, already argues that every Muslim has to... Uh, um, wrestle with the fact that he's both a Muslim and an Arab or a Muslim and a Turk and so on. Something that exists in many political works and is certainly a feature of uh, Farabi's work is the tension between the theory around politics, political theory, thought, political science, um, whatever you would call it, and practical rule. Um, and it seems that a number of his works are, are aimed at each of those categories. Um, how do you see this tension between theory and practice in the works of Al-Farabi? One reason why Farabi can get away with not mentioning particular Islamic laws or figures is that he never makes 
clear, practical recommendations for politics. We should pursue this policy. Instead, he establishes the framework um, in which, well, what he calls prudence, again, very clearly an Aristotelian theme, should operate. In the end, he leads a, leaves a lot to prudence. Uh, but as we know from Aristotle, prudence requires some kind of sound you know, theoretical understanding of the world that uh, doesn't undermine prudence or impose unrealistic claims on it. Um, so I think part of his establishing the framework of multiple umas is you know, to defend prudence. He's quite forthright. In many places, prudence has to deal with particular communities. And he's, he also never, ever says that one community should um, be preferred to another. I mean, he's kind of always silent about that to the point he never talks about cannibals or savages. So he never talks about umas that are uniquely uh, savage or uniquely civilized, um, at least in the the temperate zone where the majority of people live. So he establishes this theoretical framework of equality amongst the Umas, because the Umas are all you know, based on a particular language and literature, um, and no political action can, be, can take place without understanding the effects of that language and literature on the character of each Uma, which in turn affects the kinds of political or religious institutions that it can have. Um, so I think Farabi regards that as, as sufficient or as, as su much of an account as political philosophy can give. There are so many different umas. You can't learn all their languages. You, you can't know any one of them perfectly. But you have to establish this principle that uh, you know, that pre-existing umas are there and that they need to be respected. Um, and that a statesman who tramples on them won't get very far. And similarly, that religious authorities, this was also a concern even in the medieval, ta medieval times, religious authorities that trample on them, that try to impose one version of Islam on all of them, won't get very far. So... I think that for Farabi, the most that he can accomplish practically is to try to instill this spirit of adaptation, or you could say compromise, um, allow everyone to recognize their uh, mixed heritage, and therefore resist in fanaticism. One way you could understand fanaticism in the Farabian context is this claim that we really just have one identity and we can impose that on ourselves and then on everyone else. And an awful lot of fanaticism seems to be inspired by that, you know, be it religious or racial or nationalist. It takes all kinds of unpleasant forms, but most of them seem to involve this kind of delusion. And I think, you know, Farabi... Uh, provides a very powerful uh, argument, you know, philosophical argument against all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly a, a contemporary message. Um, to conclude our, our interview, I was wondering if you could reflect briefly on 
uh, Farabi's legacy. Um, as we mentioned before, we, in some sense, he's the, the father of uh, this type of, of political thought. Um, and yet, in another sense, he was he was forgotten. Um, so I was wondering if you can sort of deal with these these competing legacies um, that he has. Well, his indirect legacy has been strong. Um, Averroes was clearly a disciple of Al-Farabi, and he did have great influence in Europe. He was arguably the beginning of the revival of philosophy in Europe. Um, so the world would actually look quite different if Farabi had had died at, at Burra. That I can say with uh, some certainty. Uh, I won't hypothesize beyond that. So he had a great indirect influence. Uh, the fact... Uh, but you know, ironically, perhaps more on Europe than on Islam. Uh, I don't want to say that philosophy died in Islam or make sweeping co- uh, uh, comments of that sort, but it does seem that, uh, well, Averroes clearly had more influence in Europe than in the Islamic world. Um, Al-Farabi's metaphysics, I think, was continually studied in Persia and so on, but to recover the works, it really was the work of European scholars, or in the case of Muhsin Mahdi, uh, Muslims who had studied in Europe. Um, but I think now that Farabi has been rediscovered, I suspect that, and have reason to think that there is some growing influence. Uh, he has some growing influence in the Islamic world too. Uh, in the book, of course, I argue that you know, his views are have implications for all communities, um, and that everyone should study him. Uh, I'm also, of course, very leery of saying what other communities should do. I think for reasons that Farabi states, it it's, comes across as arrogant and imprudent to preach in that way. I would say, though, that with all the turmoil in the Islamic world, you know, and some of the questioning about old forms and religion and the problem of fanaticism and intolerance. I do think that studying Al-Farabi you know, might point the way out of it. Um, because, And it seems to me that his argument that we need to accommodate in Islam the ethnic and religious ummas uh, is more relevant than ever now. And given the the destructiveness of recent ethnic and religious conflicts. So I think now that he's been rediscovered and his influence is going to grow, um, I don't think that will be a bad thing. You know, how good a thing it will be remains to be seen. Um, We also need, of course, in the Western countries, uh, more graduate students studying Arabic. and you know, I, I'm working on that. I'm trying to encourage that. Um, you could say, in a way, right now, uh, I, you know, American students or Western students might have better philosophic training, but they don't have the linguistic skills. Uh, whereas, you know, Muslim stu- stu- students, you know, often have great linguistic skills, uh, but not the interest in philosophy. So those things, two things are going to have to come together um, if Farabi is going to be studied uh, more in the future. 
again, I'm confident that uh, the political situation at least does justify it, and there does seem to be more scholarly interest to which I hope to make a modest contribution. Yeah, I think the book is, is certainly a contribution to that and uh, carries within it a, a contemporary message as well. Uh, I would like to interview, end our interview today by, uh, by thanking Professor Orwin for joining us on the New Books Network. Uh, we've been talking about his recent book, Redefining the Muslim Community, Ethnicity, Religion, and Politics in the Thought of Al-Farabi, published in 2017 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you.